This is an ABC podcast. This is the Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. What was your school environment like? And I'm not talking about the culture, but the actual building. Maybe it was portables that were stinking hot in summer or freezing cold in winter. What about your oval and green space? Was there nothing but crowded quadrangles? Or Jeremy Story Carter, am I just describing (laughs) my school experience? But maybe you were different. Maybe you had a newly designed school or maybe you had sporting facilities that could rival a professional club. That was not my experience, but this is all quite important, Rich, because we're starting to better understand how this impacts the physical school environment, how that impacts how students learn and the sort of education outcomes they're likely to have. So how much does it actually matter if you're taught in a sweaty portable or a sleek science room? And what can actually be done even on relatively limited resources Mm. to improve the environments where students learn. So when you think about your schooling days and when you're a student, did you feel like that environment, whether it be the facilities, the classrooms, or just those resources that were available to you, did it impact and affect your learning? From primary school, secondary school through to universities, is architecture and design in education important? On ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. This is the Conversation Hour. Rochelle Hunt and Jeremy Story Carter, who's a part of the National Regional Reporting Team with you today. And we're talking about, well, I guess a shift in looking at educational design and educational architecture, whether it be state or privately run schools, Jeremy, whether it be primary schools, secondary schools or universities, there is a bit of a change in thinking around the physical classroom now and how we build and whether or not it changes how we learn. I don't know about you, but the school that I went to, there was nothing fancy. <laughs> what? <laughs> Whatsoever. It was portables. The tiny bit of green space that we had was slowly eaten up by portables. There was, I think, one basketball court that from year nine to year 12 shared, and it was always overtaken with the year 12 boys. Mm-hmm. And we learnt science in art rooms and art in science rooms, whatever room was available. That was it. Whether or not it had an impact on my learning, who knows? Yeah, I feel very lucky uh, to have gone to the state school that I do. But then at the same time, thinking about it, it had no grass. It similarly had one basketball court from 7 to 12. Um, we we actually considered ourselves quite fortunate because we were able to, because uh, we didn't have any grass, go to a um, neighbouring park at lunchtime, sort of walk over. Felt like we had that autonomy. But reflecting on it now, and particularly that really jarring experience where you walk past a school that might have a full oval or a swimming pool or a beautiful um, food tech room or a, uh, you know, science facilities, suddenly you start to reflect and think, well, geez, how much did that actually um, impact my learning? And you're beyond the sort of obvious things of not having, say, a Bunsen burner or a beaker and how that might directly, uh, you know, translate. I think we are asking these bigger questions of the very environments themselves, the rooms themselves, and what flow-on impacts that can have to students. I never realised that you could study theatre in a theatre, right? (laughs) The idea of a theatre being in a school never entered my mind at all. We studied drama in Portable 3, right? That's just where we studied drama. And I remember the first time I saw a very big, fancy, posh Melbourne school, and I actually didn't quite understand what it was (laughs) (laughs) and how big that space was. But that being said, I went on 
to have a huge love of the arts and mm. to study drama, to go to university for drama. So, you know what? Portable 3 came through with the goods. So maybe it was all about Mrs. Mutsayers and the teacher that I had and less about the physical environment. But there is a, a growing movement that is saying it does have an impact. And now we add the element to it of online learning and remote learning, but also ventilation comes mm. into this conversation as well. And people are talking about physically pulling down walls. A text here that says, I'm an architect working for a university on their building and campus designs. Campus built environments undoubtedly influence student satisfaction and that directly translates to academic outcomes. I take great pride in knowing that my small architectural contribution can play a small part in influencing research outcomes for some world-leading development. Uh, Sarah is in Clifton Hill. Sarah, what would you like to share with the conversation? Thank you. I am here to say that the the key bits of research um, are really about the alignment of the teaching intentions and then getting the space that actually does that. Like the key example is if, if a teacher is trying to do collaborative learning, group work, etc. But they're trapped in this space which is set up like the traditional classroom with the desks facing the front. They're actually going to really struggle to teach in that manner. So, yes, of course, there's a, you know, to have the raw facilities is one thing. But really what the research says is that there's, it's critical to have an alignment between what the teacher wants and what the design of the space actually allows them to do. So it's not just enough to build this sort of architecturally beautiful thing that might look fancy. It needs to actually, it, you know, overlay with how the teacher intends to use that space and the type of lessons that are going to take place in there. That's exactly right. There's, um, I'm a sessional uh, t- tutor and lecturer at Melbourne Uni in a subject run by the wonderful Marion Mahat um, called Innovative Spaces and Pedagogy. And we get Masters of Architecture and Masters of Education students together and get them to share their perspectives because often the designers, the architect need to hear from the teachers about yeah. their expertise, what they're trying to do, but and vice Sarah, versa. I mean, all of that makes sense, absolutely, when you listen to it, you go, of course, but then does it become a somewhat elitist conversation when it's about schools and only schools that can afford this? How do we bring this to being no, available to no. everyone? Well, this comes into every bit of government funding for a, for a state school, for a Catholic education um, run school and it's well one it's awareness every now and again a school is lucky enough to get some money and do an upgrade and if those schools are aware of how they teach what they want to teach and they they get in and talk to their architect and champion what they want to achieve that can really drive the design rather than having it the feeling that it that the modern school is dumped on them by the architect <laughs> or by the government or whatever it might be um, empowered schools who are aware of the, really the control that teachers have over the classroom, mm. the way teachers can share knowledge about what works, what practices work for their school, for their students, for their cohort, for their values. Being aware of all these things is there's no shortcuts. You've got to know what yeah. you're doing and then design for it. Sarah, thanks so much for calling in. Actually, quite a few people have sent texts saying that we should speak to you because, you know, we know that you've won, or we do now know that you've won awards for educational architecture. So thanks so much for calling our talkback line. And 
Jeremy, what's interesting is my daughter's state school that she went to when she was in grade prep, it unfortunately burnt down. Right. Really early on. It was devastating to the to the local suburb. It took a long time to be rebuilt. It has been rebuilt. She no longer goes to that school. However, we go in there to play basketball on the weekends hmm. because it's got a fancy new basketball court now. But the difference in the, the new building and how it looks and the vibe that you get from around the school versus the old school, it's incredible. And I wonder whether or not the kids learn differently now. I mean, the library... I want to hang out there. (laughs) That idea of being inspired to do a thing, so uh, having a space inspire a particular type of activity. When I was um, in my last few years of high school, our school was just under constant um, construction. And then just in our last week or two, everything started getting open up. And seeing this beautiful um, basketball court, finally we had like an indoor basketball court, something that you could actually you know, use and, and it, we were not a sporting school by any stretch, but you could kind of see, we'd all have this conversation, like if we had this over the last few years, the whole use of it would have been quite changed. So equally, I do like already Sarah tossing up this really important thing that implicit in all this is the teachers themselves and the type of education that's being used in those spaces. This text that says many school buildings are built without teacher input. I know beautiful schools and beautiful looking buildings that are not functional for the teachers who use them. Rob Ward is from Sunshine College North Campus. He is the school council president there. And Rob, yourself and your students have been very vocal about some of the quality of your school buildings there. You sort of have the old and the new. You have an old building that includes, you know, walls with large cracks and parts of the ceiling that have fallen down. Even black mould is in some of the rooms. And then you have a new building that's quite fancy and science rooms that have all of the new mod cons. Does that make a difference, the old building and the new building, as to the, how the kids learn and the enthusiasm around children's learning or students' learning? I, th- I think it does. Uh, but I think one of the big things is that the teachers uh, are the main thing that seems to keep the kids going. You know, the, without the, the teachers doing what they're, they're doing, you know, a lot of the kids will probably drift away from learning what they should. But, you know... As you say about the buildings, the the North Campus is uh, it's just two complete wings there that we can't use. It's just devastating, really. And you but, yeah. you mentioned the teachers. Um, how does it impact them having to you know the experience of teaching in a room that maybe is just not fit for purpose or just does not feel right versus one that has what they need to teach the lessons they want? Yeah. Well, they they don't uh, yeah they don't say a lot but uh, you, you can guess what their uh, what their thoughts are but you know when teachers are in the new building which is uh, quite good you know it's we've got uh, still a, a few buildings to be done but uh, our main problem at the moment is definitely the north campus that uh, it's just devastating really and I know some of your students have been very vocal and uploaded images and, and videos to YouTube and they openly say our education feels different in this space when they're talking about the new buildings. Have you been given any indication, Rob, as to how long it's going to take for the building that's quite literally falling down, how long that's going to take to either be fixed or rebuilt? Well, we, we don't know really. We haven't heard anything from the government uh, 
you know, since really that video came out. Uh, yeah, the, the kids go from... Uh, we originally started with six campuses and we're down to the two campuses now. And the kids go from, you know, north campus to the west campus and the, the difference between the two sites is just unreal. Well, Rob, we wish you all the best and we hope that, you know, that you get listened to and that that building does get rebuilt in time because if it's having an impact on the students' well-being and their educational outcomes, then that's not what we want to hear. Rob, thank you. Yeah, well, it, yeah this started right back from uh, 2006, so it's been going wow. on for quite a while. Yeah, absolutely. Rob yeah. Ward, Sunshine College North Campus, and he's the school council president there. This text, Rochelle and Jeremy, secondary school my children attended was rebuilt recently. For my son's first three years, there was no oval or any useful outdoor space. The new school was designed with three open indoor spaces. They found it noisy at times and at times difficult to learn in. The drama and music rooms were built on the opposite side of the school from where an existing theatre was located. The architect didn't really think about these things. My kids survived though and now they're successful professionals and that's come through from Ann in Bendigo. It is interesting to hear that just throwing money at something isn't necessarily the answer but it is uh, part of the mix no doubt nonetheless. Um, Heather's called through from uh, Walkerville. Ellen, Heather, sorry, what would you like to share with the program? I just wanted to talk about the parental decision making element of this. Mm. Um, There's a um, there's a direct uh, link between quality facilities and student outcomes, um, but it's also to do with uh, parental decision-making. So I remember a piece of research from a while back where it showed that um, parents in the western part of Melbourne were choosing schools um, that had the better facilities and bypassing the schools that um, had minimal facilities didn't matter about the teaching element it was a perception on the on the buildings Mm. and what happens then is that you have this residual population of kids um and they're they're losing out on um access to peers that have you know aspiration and parental engagement to support um student aspiration does that then flow on to teachers and the teachers that wanted to teach in certain schools so do you think that teachers make a similar decision that i'll teach at the the schools that have got better facilities i would imagine they do because it 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 empowers them it makes their jobs more meaningful of course i think um, teacher leadership is perhaps the one most important aspect um so you can have unbelievable teachers in teaching in in poor poor schools but um I know how much I've spoken to teachers. I know how much they would want to be able to provide for their students with with the best of everything. Good on you. Great to hear from you. Let's have a chat with Phil. Phil's in Shepparton. Oh, hello. Hi. What did you want yeah, to say? Yeah, uh, just uh, just the fact that uh, back in '66, my first year in uh, the tech school was uh, in the Shepparton showgrounds. In the showgrounds themselves. Yeah. Yeah, it was. Uh, we were foundation members. It was 127 of us from memory. Wow! And we what was moved. that like? Well, it was. Uh, well, I didn't know any different much yeah. about tech school, but they were building a new school down at Wimmore Road, and uh, we couldn't move in there for a while. So we went to the showgrounds, and uh, oh, some of the things 
we had a good oval because of the showgrounds, but the rest of it was pretty ordinary. <laughs> and it was did in you the old buildings? Did you get to experience well, I, the the difference between that and and something that was actually a little bit more fit for purpose? Yeah, well, like for instance, our locker room was a chook shed <laughs> with uh, with uh, wood chip floor um. and uh, all of the show buildings where they show their prizes and all that were different rooms, you know, math rooms, English art, and all that. But uh, I just wanted to make the point that uh, probably didn't appreciate it back then. But looking back on it, the teachers were that were terrific. They were yeah. fantastic, practical, clever teachers. You know, well, you and have to be to work around the chook shed. And Phil, I mean, did it impact your learning anyway? I mean, did you go on to work in whatever trade it was that you were learning at the tech school, which happened to be in the showgrounds at Shep? Yeah, well, I, I ended up being on the farm, but uh, those. Those trades, you know, helped me no end. And uh, academically, the teachers were fantastic too, like the English teachers and uh, maths teachers. You know, they were, they were so good looking back on it, which over uh, outweighed the fact we we're in pretty ordinary facilities. Well, uh-huh. yeah, it's such a good example. Phil, thank you. I mean... All of a sudden, I'm thinking, oh, yeah, Portable 3 was a bit hot, but there weren't any chooks in there. No, and probably a unique smell. Um, I, you know, it's more Lynx Africa at my uh, school, not so much the smell of um, feathers and uh, probably wool as well. There. No, well, our portable stunk. Let's yes. just say that. Let's, the yeah. smell of portables don't even take me back there. Heather's in Barwon Heads. Hi, Heather. Oh, good morning. I'm an ex teacher and actually left a school in the western suburbs because the space I was teaching in was very poor. It was brand new, designed, won an award. It was an arts space, but the designer decided that, that art, drama and music did not need to have soundproofing walls. You could have 120 children in there all doing their thing but no soundproofing at all. Uh, they also decided that the the sinks for the art rooms, which is where I was teaching, um, were too tall for the preps. I mean, that, I thought that would have been a gimme. Mm. <laughs> Design the prep. The preps couldn't reach the sinks. They were adult sized sinks. Uh, Seriously. You, so you're 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 obviously noticing this as uh, a teacher, but as do a teacher. do you, do you think that the kids noticed that and oh, were it affected by it? No. They were dreadfully affected. The the children with autism, anxiety, or, or children who needed a quieter space, yeah. forget that. And you think about the subjects they put in there yeah. are all high-noise subjects. You can't do drama without noise. It doesn't happen. And Heather, we can't do music without noise. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And we're going to be speaking to a few people in in just a moment because there is, I guess, a shift in educational architecture. And a part of that conversation, we need to look at everything from online learning, but also what we've learned over the years about accessibility, ensuring that people that are living with a disability feel welcome at a school. What we know now about people that are on the spectrum and the learning environment that needs to be provided there as well. So this is, uh, you know, when we talk about architecture 
in education. It's more than just the physical building or the fact that you can reach the sink. Although there's something mm. to be said for those really little toilets. You know, oh. <laughs> there's nothing like when you have to go to the loo as a parent in a kindergarten and yeah, you have to go to the... <laughs> this is what you have to look forward to, Jeremy Story Carter, going to kindy and having to sit on one of those tiny, tiny little toilets. Can't wait, Rish. From primary school to secondary school to university, is architecture and design in education important? This is The Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. Rochelle Hunt and Jeremy Story Carter with you talking about education architecture. It's a small but growing movement and when you start to break it down, Jeremy, there's a lot to think about. Initially on the surface, you know, you would think this would be a public versus private conversation. Mm. Some schools are portables on portables and some schools have theatres and swimming pools. But it's more than that, isn't it? And it's not enough just to leave it at that uh, conversation around just base resources because, of course, there are going to be schools that can afford things that are out of reach of certain state schools. And, in fact, even keeping schools open in parts of regional uh, Victoria is an enormous challenge at the moment. But I don't think it's enough just to be like, well, more resources uh, is always going to equal um, better education outcomes because there, as we're learning, there are things you can do. There are also things you can avoid uh, when you are building schools uh, to make the most of those opportunities. And I love that already we're hearing from teachers who are emphasising the point. It's not enough just to make something that looks flash or is new. That is not even uh, half of the the mix. You actually really need to consider the space in terms of how lessons are going to be rolled out there, how students are going to learn in those environments. So, uh, yeah, I, I I don't think it's enough just to reduce it down to, well, those with more will always have better outcomes. Scott Allardyce is a leading Victorian education designer. He's designed parts of RMIT, Swinburne University, Federation Uni in Ballarat and currently designing parts of La Trobe in Shepparton. Scott, that's a long list of universities that you've been involved in and you've been listening to a lot of today's conversation. Is this an an emerging area, do you think, educational architecture? Look, it's, it's a, thanks to, for having me on today, Rochelle. Um, it certainly is uh, an area that has, um, search, certainly in an architectural perspective, had a lot of energy over the past, certainly the past sort of 10 years, and we've seen a lot of evolution. And I think from some of the listeners today, some of those have hit the mark and some of those haven't, um, and different experiences. But uh, we're, we, what has been really evident is uh, the way that, that the spaces have evolved um, and the importance I think of uh, the inputs of teachers um, and students uh, to bring that to fruition as well. It's not just we can't do this in isolation as designers. Mm. So yeah how does this not simply become a a question of you know who can employ uh, bigger and better architects or throw more money you know to try and build more dynamic spaces how can this become something that's a little bit more um, equalized across the board? Look I I, fundamentally I don't really think it's it's about the money I think it's about clever thinking Mm. uh, and and listening and you can do a lot with a little. Um, we, we've delivered um, many educational environments um, that really haven't had uh, you know, great budgets, enormous budgets. Um, we've we've uh, refurbished existing facilities to really craft and retune those 
to match what the, the more modern way of teaching, whether that be a more collaborative approach um, and more peer, peer learning. Um, so student, student learning um, is then supported um, in unison with you know, inputs and briefings and so on mm. from from those users. It's funny because it does feel like a, a relatively new and progressive conversation, yet there's a text here from Chris in Donvale that says, my dad was an architect and did quite a bit of small primary school work back in the 60s. I remember mm. he always used to say that listening to the people that were using the space was the most important mm. thing. He learnt a lot during his years of designing for all sorts of buildings. So it's something that I guess has been around for a long time, but if you take that from, from Chris, I mean, his dad knew right from the beginning that it doesn't matter how cool it looks if you can't use the space properly then it's pointless oh absolutely that's that's fun i think that's a fundamental premise of of architecture and uh and creating spaces that that are fit for purpose that's really the key key takeaway there and you you mentioned about refurbing spaces just to um you potentially even on on relatively limited budget and making practical adjustments that actually have a tangible sort of um, outcome for learning. So what what are some of those, in, in real terms, what, what might that look like, um, you know, if, if we're turning an existing space into something that is more usable and more practical for teachers and students? I think, uh, you know, a lot of being, we all know, the spatial environment uh, has a huge impact on us, even freshening up a space, repainting, floor coverings, all those really basic things, uh, creating good natural light, so potentially opening up the windows and uh, there's some, some you know, key research that, that uh, shows benefit in just the, the idea of natural light. But then coming into the furniture arrangements is probably the key driver in a, in a sort of a classroom environment that starts to dictate how that space is used. Um, I think it, uh, Sarah earlier mentioned about the idea that uh, going into a classroom and if it's sort of tables in rows and the teacher's stuck behind the table at the front, very hard to then enable that space to become mm. more collaborative and uh, for people, for students and, and teachers. It's to very speak. easy to hide, though, as a student if you mm, haven't done your homework. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you, mentioned, you mentioned briefly opening windows and, of course, uh, as we continue in this um, pandemic and we're trying to figure mm. out what makes uh, a safer environment um, for kids, how does all of this overlay with the idea of improving the uh, ventilation in our schools, which we know is a growing discussion and, and will quite plausibly continue to be a bigger discussion in years to come. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, that fresh air content across the board um, there, Jeremy, is, is um, there's a lot of talk about that in the building industry and the design industry. Um, rates of ventilation uh, are, are an important element of that, both from a sustainability but a health perspective. So it's not just the school environment that we're talking about. I think that's a, that's a common yeah. thread. Well, in just a moment, we're actually going to speak to a, a school in Benalla, a really incredible learning uh, charity that has built an entire outdoor learning space. Scott, thanks for your insights. We appreciate it. No problems. Pleasure. Thank Scott you. Allardyce there. He's a Victorian education designer, worked everywhere from RMIT, Swinburne, Ballarat, currently working in SHEP. And I know Jeremy Story Carter, when we talk about huge educational areas or just big public buildings in regional Victoria. We did a program only a few weeks ago looking at the importance of architecture in the regions. So something like a university mm. and if it's built properly and if it's 
you know, if it's got something about it, that can often draw people to that particular university and to that region. To that very region. And I think we're seeing so many great examples of how those spaces can be used collaboratively and quite cleverly so that they don't actually just become standalone places of uh, education. They're actually dynamic parts of the community itself. And uh, earlier we, you know, had a, a caller mention that these um, these considerations really do filter mm-hmm. into parents' thinking. So the knock-on of effects um, for what they can actually mean for that regional community or town are actually quite profound. Kate's in Whittlesea. Hi, Kate. Hi, how are you going? Good. I, I was very lucky to grow up in Montmorency, which is just near Eltham, and I had a very progressive principal, and we had a sister school, and it was Collingwood Primary School, mm-hmm. and we swapped experiences. We were shocked by the concrete, they were shocked by the greenery. Yes. <laughs> we, end up, we end up making kite and walking to, say, Brimless Park, which they monsel that. We end up, yeah, walk, making these kites out of black garbage bags. And, yeah, and then we, we went to there school and we were just shocked by yeah. all the concrete. Yeah. And, yeah. I'll never it's, forget the first time, Kate, you know, just seeing a, a school that had heaps and heaps of grass. The idea that a school had a swimming pool, right? Uh, I, I, I have this vivid memory um, in year eight. I yeah went from my state school to, to look at another school and it, dead set, the only frame of reference I had for it is that it looked like what I imagine Hogwarts was like. <laughs> I, I genuinely could not... Un- and that there were... Um, the school had themed bathers, like everyone had yeah. school-branded bathers, and it was just... It was genuinely confusing, and I actually felt uncomfortable. Like, it, yeah. it was so uh, alien to my experience that I actually didn't covet it. I was a bit confused by it, and I kind of wanted to go back uh, to my school. But thinking about it, there are all sorts of possibilities that open up when you do have access to those sorts of things. So... Um, Whereas yeah. my school, I think people are like, this is what I imagine Shawshank Redemption <laughs> would look like. Neville's called through as well. Hi, Neville. Uh, yeah, good morning, guys. So, look, I probably got on the back end of the conversation between uh, the spot, uh, the designer and what have you, but I probably want to put it back to a little bit of a, a practical uh, um, experience that I went through with... Um, my secondary education, I never went on to university, but I become a tradie and what have you and went to a, a, what they called a technical school back in the day. And my father had to put six of us kids through uh, that different type of education. And he, he was able to uh, basically work out and quantify which one of the, which one of us kids went to, a, let's say, a college and which ones went to a, 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 a technical school. One of, the, one of the things I do remember my father saying, though, he was never after whether they had carved through it out and painted on paintings and blah, blah, blah with it. He was after the fundamentals of what needed to be in the school and in a tech school was all the technical side of things, yes. the, the woodworking machinery, the engineering machinery, the metalworking machinery, all those sort of things which would help us educate. Yes. But also it kept, the, the, it kept the cost of going along to school down lower because yes. we were paying all of those those prettier finishes to the school, but we were paying for the fundamentals. Oh, Neville, I think you've hit on something. I mean, I think when we lost our tech schools in this state, 
we lost so much. When you look at our apprenticeship rates now, the apprenticeship dropouts, where you can go and get an apprenticeship. And the, as Neville just said, Jeremy, I mean, the, the resources and the equipment that you had there, it was designed specifically for those needs. And as a result, we had young people that were trained in those areas. We lost so much. Yeah, it's all good to have, um, you know, beautiful carpet and light streaming in from sort of architecturally designed windows. But if you don't have those fundamental spaces where people can learn those sorts of skills um, that really set them up for life. And now we find ourselves in a position where we're trying to reverse engineer our way out of that um, that particular problem. It's, um, yeah, it's it's pretty cute. This says the primary school my kids attended was rebuilt in 2010. It won awards, but since then it's been required to have major modifications. Walls and doors installed to make it usable. There are spaces largely unused, odd-shaped classrooms. Now it has significant issues with water as well, peeling and plaster. How is this allowed? Both usability and quality have to be questioned. Anne's in Port Arlington. Morning. Morning. Um, it's lovely. It's a lovely topic that you're engaging with here. Um, I've had the opportunity to do a lot of um, designing for libraries and classrooms, but mainly school libraries. And what I've learned is that you need to say what is the learning that I want to take place here, and then you design the physical environment to support that. So um, whether it's hey, I want kids to learn how um, fiction books can be engaged with so I can browse across them. So you design the space so the kids are surrounded by fiction books. Or you might say, gee, wouldn't it be great if the history teacher had on the uh, on a classroom space in the library all of the best history books so that the mm. history teacher can refer to those? And, you know, I was never asked for a big open learning space. Mm. Everybody always wanted a space where they could control their environment. And so the kids learned that if they wanted to work in groups, they'd choose that area. And so many students wanted quiet places to focus in their study time. So it's a matter of um, looking at what is the learning, then what's the physical environment for that learning, rather than somebody saying, hey, the topic of the (laughs) month of the year is let's have big open spaces when what the teachers want to do is be able to Mm. show the video or connect in their own space without being interrupted. So it's, you know, you have to consider what is the learning and then you design the space to meet that. I can certainly remember that amid the chaos of a um, high school environment, the thing you really craved was just finding just a little nook somewhere that was quiet, was quiet that you could actually feel like you get a little bit of focus. E- equally, though, we know that teachers have to wear many hats uh, throughout the day and, and um, mm. rooms are used for different purposes. So how do you get yeah. that, do you think, get that specificity of of a room while knowing that what is an English uh, or history room is suddenly a maths room later in the day? Yeah, it's pretty much timetabling. So as a timetable, you would look at um, what are the what's the learning that happens best in those sort of classrooms. But then when you need different types of learning, then you put the person in, you know, the science lab um, or the different types of space. Mostly you can move tables around and that provides for the direct instruction from the front or then you can break out to use small mm-hmm. groups. Uh, smaller groups. But you mentioned early kids with um, particular learning needs. I found that um, at lunchtime, many students need to have a quiet space where they can download. And that's where um, the library spaces, we provided a controlled environment. So a lot of kids could just sit and quietly absorb what had happened during the morning. And then they could regroup 
to face the social chaos of the afternoon. So that was another important function of a library. The more things change, the more there will always be kids who hang out in the library uh, at lunchtime. 100%. I think there's an entire program on actually just the role and the importance of libraries oh. within schools. I mean, either it's a place of refuge and you're literally hiding out or it's now a space that's libraries and how libraries are used and viewed have... And everyone thought libraries will disappear. You know, they'll go... Who needs them anymore? How'd that work out? If anything, they've become more important, haven't they? We've recognised the importance of them. This text, this is such a good topic. I have a child with moderate hearing loss. Open plan classrooms are just not ideal for her. However, local Catholic school had no green space. Other primary school had a bad attitude with kids with special needs. I rejected the local secondary school as it had too many dark corners and out of sight. I sent her to a fairly run-down secondary school with lots of portables, but the staff are great and their attitude won out and she's had a great education. This is the Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. Rochelle Hunt and Jeremy Story Carter with you. Jeremy is a part of the National Regional Reporting Team. So let's go to Benalla. Now, Rosie Coop is the Executive Officer of Tomorrow Today in Benalla, which is a charitable foundation that helps kids not fall out of the education system. And Rosie, we've been talking about when we think about the environment of which we learn. And now ventilation is such a big part of the conversation, which maybe, you know, two or three years ago, it certainly wasn't. And two years ago, Tomorrow Today built an outdoor learning space. Why did you go with that? Yes. Hi, Rochelle. Hi, Jeremy. It's been wonderful listening uh, to this program and hearing you talk about the importance of outdoor spaces and created spaces for learning Back in sort of late 2019, we were already thinking about what we could do with our sizable backyard at the end of the Tomorrow Today Court. It was sort of overgrown, um, but we knew it would be a wonderful space to run our preschool program, which is really a parenting education program where kids and their parents come together. We actually have over 80% of the Benella population with preschool age children coming along to that and we were running the program in our front rooms, um, so indoors, but we knew we had this space which would just be wonderful for outdoor learning in the right at the back of the court. Uh, so when COVID swept across the world in early 2020, we thought, okay, it's time, we've got to do it um, because we might not be able to use those rooms. Um, we're going to, we very soon discovered we had to have limited numbers in those rooms. So we were trying to work out, you know, whether we could we had going to turn people away or have shorter programs. Uh, so we quickly uh, started to develop that area. We found a local landscape architect who was willing to do some pro bono work for us. Uh, and she has an expertise in learning spaces, uh, learning landscapes, mm. and has done schools and playgrounds in the region. Uh, and she came and had a look and just said, oh, it's magnificent. It's mm. got these four beautiful elm trees, which are sort of that um, the foundation for a great outdoor space. And now um, it is just magnificent. We run heaps of sessions out there. So parents and children sit out there. I'm looking out the window at the moment. <laughs> It's got a water tank so, you know, you've got the water for the kids where they can fill up cups and take them over to the sandpit. We've got a little uh, outdoor shop with a counter and um, they can count out 
you know, those mud pies that you might remember <laughs> making as a child. Yep. Um, yeah, it's just beautiful. There's lavender that they can squish between their fingers and smell. I think the thing about outdoor learning is it engages all the senses. I mean, nature is is just the best teacher. Uh, they can also take risks balancing as they walk across the big red gum log that creates a bridge over the sand pit. Oh, my goodness. Um, Sounds like a fairy tale. Kind of want to be there right now. <laughs> yes. Um, Transported. Well, I'm interested yeah. from the kids' perspective, um, yeah. other than what the going rate for mud pie is uh, these days, mm-hmm. um, but, well, I, like, I have this a memory. A few sticks. A few sticks, right, yeah, that seems about right. Um, uh, cost of living going up. Um, I remember our... For some reason, at the end of year 12, a, a teacher of ours taking us out of the physical school environment and just taking us cr- across the road to the park. And mm. maybe it was because we'd been sitting in this same room for forever, but it was quite jarring. Like it was, uh, and we were almost, I think, we could see the idea and it seemed really cool, but maybe being cynical kids, we were a bit distracted or a bit, um, you know, struggled to focus a little bit. How do mm-hmm. the kids find it uh, in terms of focusing, given that we've already had people um, speak on the program about the importance of those sort of quieter, more focused spaces? Yeah, look, I think um, we an important part of our PEEP, uh, PEEP program is story time and song time, and that's when uh, we try to teach kids and, and their parents the importance of still time and focused time, uh, and that's usually done in a group um, sitting around in a circle and in we've traditionally always uh, had that you know in the front rooms when we've brought it out and we now do it usually around the sandpit um, because it's got a little wall around it so the parents sit on the wall and the kids sit beside them I think because they've had that indoor time where they've learned this is still time where we we sing and you know we clap along to songs or we listen to the story mm. um no they, they do know. I mean, we, we have to – there's that temptation because their toes are touching sand. Mm, yeah. um, makes but they also difference. know that after that time they will get their time to play. I uh, just love it, and, Rosie. And, I, and you're so right in that it, it makes a difference for the teachers, for the parents, you know, for the, for the students as well. Thank you for transporting us to your just beautiful outdoor learning space. We could visualise every moment of it. And congratulations on the work that you do at Tomorrow Today as well. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Rochelle. Bye, Jeremy. Rosie Coop, Executive Officer there of Today, Tomorrow, or Tomorrow Today, apologies, in Benalla. Let's have a chat to Alan. Alan's in Melton. Morning. Oh, thanks for taking me call, Michelle. It's a while since I've spoken to you. But uh, as the theme's architecture, I've got... I, my secondary education was with old bluestone pile in Victoria Parade, East Melbourne. It's a very famous college called Parade. They've now shifted out to Bundera. Mm. And I was able to get a, a government scholarship from St. Gabriel's Primary. Oh, and then they put me in a special class and I got a government scholarship four years with old Bluestone Pile. It's very famous with some of my most famous footballers were there, including Serge Silvani died last year. He's my schoolmate. And he's an old Paradian. And I'm an old Paradian. We're a very famous (laughs) old college and architecture in Victoria Parade, East Melbourne. I don't know if it's still standing. But I know I am, and my mate <laughs> is no longer. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that, Alan. But I mean, these are the strong memories that we have, don't we? And we think about—we all remember our school environment and the impact that it had 
on our learning. And I do find it fascinating that it doesn't matter how much money you throw at it. Yep. At the end of the day, it comes back to the kids and to the teachers. This text says, I'm an ex-primary school teacher. We moved away from separate classrooms to open plan. Open plan was a nightmare for all. It's noisy and it's chaotic and it's far worse for those kids that have specialised learning needs. And through these texts and through the conversations we've had today, you can already hear how um, you know things that are in vogue, that ebb and flow, ideas that might seem great, don't always actually work out even if you do throw money at them. And Equally, there's a lot of pride from people who've maybe gone to schools with lower resources but have had fantastic outcomes for them either personally or academically. Uh, So, yeah, I I like that we're not just reducing it down to raw cost because um, I think we we can do better than that. Sarah Aldridge is a UK-registered architect and she's the director of the newly found Regional Architecture Association. Sarah... Look, we spoke to you at great length just a few weeks ago about the importance of regional architecture. You add another layer and you dig that down into the importance of educational architecture, especially in the regions. This is something that I know that you're passionate about. Yes, and I think, good morning. Um, I think that um, we maybe have some opportunities regionally that that maybe our city colleagues would find harder um, to access. For example, you know, we just had Rosie talking about her amazing outdoor space and, you know, that's that's going to be much harder to pull off if you're in a, in a city school, whereas, you know, regionally that's that kind of outdoor learning um, and, and enjoying those spaces, whether they're actually on the school premises or whether they're adjacent premises or, you know, adjacent beaches or, you know, forests or whatever, um, are obviously much more accessible to um, regional schools. So I kind of feel like, you know, in some respects regional schools can can integrate that kind of learning um, maybe easier than, than some of the city schools and I think that we're super fortunate. But I'm, I imagine you would be also the first to say that just having a paddock next door or something like that isn't isn't the answer. So how do you make the most of those sorts of um, you know potentials while knowing that work still has to, to go into it? Um, I think, you know, what we've heard loud and clear throughout this whole program is that um, the importance of the briefing process and, and consultation. And it's the same whether you're designing an educational building or, or any other building. You know, you can design a beautiful building, it can look good or whatever, but if it's not appropriate to its use and if it's not going to function in the way that it's proposed to be used, then it's it's just not going to work. So, you know, the, the one of your previous callers was talking about... Um, music and drama being taught in open plan spaces without any sort of acoustic treatments and how how sort of tricky that was and you know at the same time you you're right you can have a paddock next door but if either nobody's prepared to use it or the paddock is in full sun and completely flat and not appropriate for the use that the school might need it for then of course it's not going to be any use whereas you know Rosie was talking about a very specific um, carefully curated outdoor space that that, though you know the the squeezing the lavender Mm. between your toes which I think was obviously gorgeous Um, and you see where where other schools you know have almost sort of appropriated space you know they're just kind of kind of driven by this sort of pedagogical need and they've they've sort of made a space work for them and adapted it over time and and sometimes all you need is you know a couple of big rocks and some really shady trees and the kids will just play happily Mm -hmm. you know with ants and bits of dirt and twigs and you know that that sort of creative play can really come out of almost no resources but if you have a paddock that doesn't have a few rocks and shady trees and you know then it's not going to work or another school might just need a really big open space because they want to do beat tests or something i don't know you know whatever 
Um, and, and so that briefing and that consultation is just such a super important part of any project. And, and without that, really, the project's not going to be successful. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I went to school in a, a regional area and yet there was no green space. There was local green space. But, you know, mm. we sure as hell weren't allowed to leave the school in order to go there. It just wasn't something that was seen as accessible. And then when you drill down this even further, Sarah, and we look at how we break down the space and how we design the space in which the architects are learning in to design the space that we will learn in. Now, I know that that was kind of uh, it's a little bit out there, but that makes a difference as well. Yes, I mean, I very specifically think about a building that I used to teach in, which is at Bond University, and it's the architecture school at Bond University. And it's a, it's an amazing building. Um, and it it was designed very much for the, the way that architects are educated. And architects never work on their own they always work with teams of people and it's all about consultation it's all also about discussing um, with your peers your ideas and having them sort of peer tested if you like and and so the whole building was designed to be quite open plan which i know open plan teaching has had a bit of a bit of a battering in this conversation but in this case it was very definitely deliberate and very definitely dovetailed with the the methods of teaching and the idea behind that was that the the architecture program is very studio based and so the undergraduates and the postgraduates had different studios on different floors but that they were kind of open plan around a big atrium and the idea behind that was that there's this sort of vert- this idea about vertical learning so you can learn from your peers who are directly your your horizontal peers but you can also learn from your vertical peers if you like so the postgrads can um, you know pass on some really great information and, and give some really good critique to the the undergrads and so that was a very deliberate um Mm. Rather than being scared of people was, stealing your ideas, <laughs> yeah, well, you know, they, you know the idea is, yeah. So you you put things on the wall and you invite critique, and there's a real bit, but there is a real difference between criticism and critique. You know, critique is positive and intended to be um, helpful, um, and if if it's all framed in that way, and and people are prepared to collaborate and pass sort of casual critique when either because they, something occurs to them or because they've been asked to. You do need that sort of open planness because people need to sort of happen upon other people doing work or not feel like they have to knock on a closed door to go yes, in. Yes, because it's and intimidating I, I think, to do that. Sarah, it's mm. fascinating. Thank you so much, as always. It's been a, a pleasure speaking with you. No worries. Thank you very much. I appreciate being involved in the conversation. Sarah Aldridge, she's a UK-registered architect and director of Space Studio, also the secretary of a relatively new-formed regional architecture association. Just that touch on libraries before, Jeremy. Yep. This says, I use the library all year round at the Wimmera. The new Dimbula Library is so amazing. I went to the Nil Library only to find it was in the council offices. They have a small old place in a back street but it's well run. It's not as bright and illuminated with gardens like so many others. They have so many schools in Nil and so many children that would benefit from a better open planned library like Dimbula. I'm sensing a library show. A library show is very much in the works. Um, I do, someone mentioned, well, how dare you say money doesn't matter for schools? You need resources. Absolutely. In fact, a text just above that says, uh, my child is very privileged, goes to a school where you're able to stable a horse. So, of course, uh, resources matter. But I think what we've learnt today from hearing from some really interesting voices is that there are ways on lower 
uh, with lower resources to still give kids the best chance, the best spaces to learn in. Uh, and I think we've heard some really creative and wonderful ideas during the time. Tomorrow, we're doing a special program as well. We're doing a skin cancer special tomorrow, even though it might be airing the end of summer. That doesn't mean that you put the sunscreen away. So relearning what we know about sunscreen, but also we'll be digging down into some of the trends that are happening on TikTok when it comes to tanning as well. So do we need an entire new skin cancer education program? Jeremy Story Carter, a part of the National Regional Reporting Team. As always, mate, thank you. Thanks so much, Rich. I learned a lot today. We learned a lot. Look, mate, we both went to the School of Hard Knocks, all right? (laughs) So we are constantly learning. Take care and I'll speak with you tomorrow.